This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got the authors of Five Frequencies, Leadership Signals That Turn Culture Into Competitive Advantage. Jeff Grimshaw, Lynn Vicio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Great. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, I'm thankful for this book uh, because my observation of workplace that we see in 2019 is challenging, to say the least. Uh, There's a lot of turnover. There's a lot of lack of engagement with employers and employees. Organizations are struggling, but there are those organizations that are doing incredibly well. And as you know, we kind of chatted about a bit in the, the pre-show, I, there's a reason for that. And that's because they have the right culture uh, to breed success for the organization. So uh, first off, you know, what prompted you to write the book? Well, we're sitting on a big pile of research because over the last 20 years or so, we have been in the business of helping leaders uh, demystify culture. Um, we, we think that, uh, you know, 99 out of 100 leaders will tell you that culture is important, but many of them will proceed to say, but we don't really know what to do with it. We think culture is like anything else that's important in business. You've got to be able to measure it. So we, uh, with a lot of the work that we do, we are helping leaders define their desire to stay culture in a measurable way. Measure the gap between the culture they have and the culture they need. And then close that gap. And, uh, you know, it's not HR that's closing that gap between the culture they have and the culture they need. It's what leaders do, what leaders do that uh, moves them closer, moves the needle on culture. And so we took a look at what is moving the needle on culture. And it became pretty quickly, pretty darn clear what moves the needle on culture. The leaders who are turning their culture from a liability into an asset, into a source of competitive advantage, are consistently, deliberately, sending strong signals across what we call the five frequencies through their decisions and actions. Number two is what they reward and recognize. Number three is what they tolerate or don't tolerate. Number four is how they show up informally and unscripted situations, you know, where they're not carrying around a PowerPoint deck. And then fifth is formal communication, the stuff that is in town halls and emails and posters on the wall. Yeah, those are all assets that every strong leader needs to uh, wash, rinse, and repeat. Uh, because I, I think, as a leader myself, I know that you're being watched all the time. And if there's any inconsistency, then you know, a, a quote of a good colleague of mine is, you know, confusion repels and clarity attracts. And if you confuse mm-hmm. your teams on where you stand on matters, it, it will just bring on all types of different uh, challenges and issues that as a leader, you really don't want to spend a lot of time on, but you may have to. Right. For sure. One of the things too, Michael, that I think compelled us to write the book is that we, we work with a lot of leaders and we work with a lot of great leaders, but leaders have had a really hard time getting their arms around like what this culture thing means. So even when their intentions are good and they know they may have aspects of their culture that are less than healthy, 
and they want to change it without having sort of a framework to do that. They really struggle with, you know, how, where, where do I jump in? Where do I even begin to address culture in my organization? You know, how do I do this without sort of handing it off to HR, which is, you know, clearly not the right solution. Yeah, I see it happen way too many times where they just expect the HR person uh, to handle everything. And there's a distance between the executive team, whether it's, you know, the C-suite or just a, a CEO or an executive director and the team. And they automatically start distancing themselves from that CEO or senior leader because they're not around. And it's, it's a case mm-hmm. of, you know, like you said, item number four, how they show up informally, you know, walking around and, and talking with your people and not necessarily following up on, on work things, but you know, check-ins, how are you? How are things going? Uh, and, and, and talk with them. If, if, you know, depending on the size of the organization and how well you know the individual, you may, you may be familiar with, you know, their life story or what's going on with their life or their kids or anything like that. And as long as you observe boundaries and uh, in, in what you talk about, then it, it creates more of a, a humanistic, it, uh, type of situation because I, I I've noticed that you know in the last I'd say ten years if not longer where the silos that we have in the workplace seem to be getting thicker and taller where mm-hmm. you know twenty thirty years ago you work in an organization even if it's you know a larger size organization there were still team members that you knew uh, maybe you'd go out to lunch or dinner with them occasionally you you knew their story and you because when we're spending so many consecutive waking hours together, uh, I, I feel it's, it's a shame uh, from a human standpoint, not to at least have some understanding of you know, what motivates that person. What are their interests? What, you know, what do they like to do uh, besides, you know, coming to work every day and working on whatever they work on at the office. For sure. You know, Michael, there's uh, evolutionary biologists say that as human beings, we are hardwired. We have this innate ability that we operate from subconsciously to, to constantly monitor for who is in our tribe and who's outside of our tribe. Because when we're, when, when we're surrounded by people who are in tribe, then we can let down our defenses. But our brains tell us to be on guard and to be in a defensive posture when, uh, be ready for danger and a threat when there are people around us who are out of our tribe. So part of what we're doing, if you believe the theory, uh, when you are uh, engaging people informally is that you're signaling to them that you are in their tribe. People can, people are much more likely to innovate. They're much more likely to solve problems rather than hiding them or minimizing them or excusing them. When they feel like they've got leadership with whom they share a tribal affiliation. When that doesn't happen, uh, the, the opposite occurs. And one of the things that's tricky and counterintuitive for some leaders is they think that they build trust by having the people around them feel like they never make any mistakes or that they get everything right or that they're never vulnerable. But in fact, one of the things that we know is that when leaders are willing to get out there and be vulnerable and talk about their mistakes, it builds tribal affiliation and creates stronger cultures. And and it also, again, it it really hammers home that, trust factor as well because and it's funny you mentioned you know the you know, don't make mistakes you do everything perfect yeah, i'm seeing a lot of talk about this recently and i know there's other books that are coming out on the subject of you know 
we shouldn't run away from failure. Now we should obviously not aim to, you know, fail. I don't think anyone is, has that goal, but to have a, an environment where we understand that there's going to be mistakes happening along the way, as long as there are mechanisms in place to catch them early, reduce any impact that it has and, and learn from it. So you, you make a better product or service um, when you catch those uh, errors or mistakes, it, it makes for, uh, I, quite frankly, a little bit more of a creative workplace environment where and it's almost a, a safe environment saying, okay, I don't have to be afraid of making a mistake and what's going to happen to me because I see it too often. You know, organizations, everyone's dancing around on eggshells and going, okay, one false move, then you know, it's going to tumble down like a you know, deck of cards and what's going to happen to me. So it, it freezes people to the point where they're not willing to try anything new so they're playing it so right. safe that they don't want to uh, try to explore and do something. And what that does, one, it makes for an environment that doesn't grow. Number two, as a consumer or a client, we're actually getting robbed from new innovation and new products and services that actually could be beneficial to us, society, whomever. One of the uh, Google did some research a few years back, and one of the interesting things they learned, they were asking the question, what creates a, you know, the most effective team? Like, how do we create really effective, high-functioning, highly productive teams? And they were looking at all kinds of factors, and you know, you know, the, the initial thoughts were about, you know, how, do we have to have lots of smarts on the team? Like, what, you know, do we have to have people that are cross-functional? Like, what's the right mix of people? And interestingly, what they, what they learned is that the teams that were the highest functioning were those where there was a great deal, basically, of psychological safety, right? So people felt on those teams sort of interpersonally safe, like they could take risks, they could be candid, they could be open, they had trust for each other, they had respect for each other. It didn't matter, you know, what level in the organization, it didn't matter how smart, it didn't matter if they had PhDs, what matters is that they felt psychologically safe. And when they did, to your point, right, um, those teams could function and function well. So, so we always talk with leaders about things like, you know, reserving the right to get smarter and treating mistakes as intellectual capital, which are phrases that basically reflect the ability to, um, to learn from mistakes, to move forward, to be sort of psychologically safe around not being perfect. And, and that's crucial because, again, organizations that have, you know, that type of um, environment where people can go in and feel safe. Um, you get better productivity, uh, reduce absenteeism, better engagement, um, and you know, better products and services, like I said before, where um, the consumer or the client gets you know, a better experience because you have employees and teams that aren't afraid of what's going to happen if they you know, make one simple misstep. So, so one question I have to to both of you, I'd love to hear on that is um, item number two. You know what they reward and recognize. Uh, too often, I've seen you know people will, or organizations will give out you know bonuses or the uh, ever so popular annual review uh, and mm -hmm. and you know, performance improvement plans and all these other things that you know have been you know going around forever and. Um, don't have the results that I think people think that they should. So, you know, what were some of the, you know, the discoveries when you were doing all of this research on, you know, what works for organizations, uh, for leaders to, you know, reward and recognize their employees? 
One thing that stands out really clearly is just how messed up and how misaligned a lot of uh, organizations' reward systems are with what leaders claim they want. So for example, lots of organizations say they want people uh, to work more effectively in teams, but a lot of times what actually gets rewarded is individualized performance. There's a guy who famously, a management professor named Stephen Kerr, who in the 70s famously coined the phrase uh, that uh, it's folly to reward A while hoping for B. And he parlayed that notoriety into landing a, a senior advisory, leadership advisory job with Goldman Sachs when they were making the transition from being a uh, privately held uh, uh, finance firm to being publicly held. And one of the things that Goldman Sachs uh, uh, was became aware of was that they were, had a culture that uh, had rewarded people for uh, making long-term gains instead of short-term gains. That they played, that they made decisions that put the long-term reputation of the firm at that center of decision-making process. And yet, when Goldman Sachs went public and became like all the other firms on Wall Street, they actually started rewarding short-term behavior. And uh, Lloyd Blankfein, when after he paid back the $10 billion bailout that Goldman Sachs took in the wake of the financial crisis, fessed up to Congress and said, we uh, were rewarding people on in terms of short-term gains that were not sustainable, and that needs to change not only in Goldman Sachs, but in the industry. And what's interesting is that the guy who coined the phrase, the guy who literally wrote a book on reward systems saying how important it is to uh, align the rewards with what you want to see was actually you know, working again as a senior advisor for Goldman Sachs while they were messing it all up. I think it just goes to show really how difficult that can be uh, to do to make sure that you're actually consistently day in and day out, not just with what you pay people for, but what you give them any kind of warm signals for is actually the behavior and performance you want to see more of. It requires constant attention and sometimes difficult decisions. Yeah, I've seen that in, you know, even in my own career, you know, I find that the very often frequent, you know, conversations uh, and, you know, just, you know, a constant review, not, not to the state where they're feeling like, um, you know, in a never ending annual review, but just a lot of frequency when it comes to how things are going, check-ins uh, and conversations and, and doing it in such a way where it's approachable and they're comfortable and they can answer There's an employee can answer the questions without having to look in a file or check something. They just know because, you know, they're living and breathing the work and they know what they're doing and, and they know what kind of results they're getting out of it. Uh, it, right. it helps, it helps the organization pivot quicker to say, okay, well, for some reason, this employee is having difficulty with this and it's due to this particular module in this system that we're using okay, what can we do about that to make it easier? You make that change, all of a sudden you've made their life a little bit easier because now they can do something a little bit easier or more efficient or whatever the case may be. And you're pivoting and you're doing it now because otherwise if you don't communicate with them, that might go on for weeks, months, years, who knows? And and then all of a sudden it's like, we've been struggling with this for how long now? And, and like, why right. didn't anybody say anything? Well, we didn't know how to approach you on it. Like, 
okay. That's something that we need to uh, address right away as well. So, you know, that's, that's spot on. Yeah. And in, in every, every annual review is always that, okay, what have you done now? And, and we've seen it. There's, there's a way to gamify that as well because employees know, okay, my review's coming up in a couple of months. Okay. Let's crank it up a little bit. Let's get my numbers up. Hey, your numbers look great. Here's your bonus. And then they revert back to you know, whatever you know, workload that they were doing because there's a lack of relationship. There's a lack of, um, you know, desire to make the the culture a place that is beneficial for everybody. And it's, um, like you said, this is not something that you just say, okay, this is our culture for our organization. And it sits on a bookshelf like the mission, vision, and values poster in the boardroom. Right. It's, this is a living, breathing entity and it has to, you know, constantly be nurtured, watered, um, and, and dealt with. Uh, constantly, and that's how you can maintain and and grow organizations. Yeah, um, and just to go back, so you know, we've told you the 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 negative case study of what uh, happened at uh, Goldman Sachs, where they misaligned rewards. But a, a better story, a positive example, is what Alan Mulally did when he took over at Ford. He said, "I want there to be honesty and transparency," and everybody said, "Sure, that's what we've been talking about forever." But it's not what they rewarded. So he set up a metric system where he said, I'm going to have all my VPs come in and tell me, are things red, yellow, or green across our performance metrics? And everybody kept bringing him these green scorecards. And he said, I don't get it. How are we losing billions of dollars and yet all of our scorecards are green? Well, it was because what got rewarded historically at Ford was saying things were good when they weren't. So finally, some one brave VP, a guy named Mark Fields, who would eventually succeed Alan Mulally, shows up with a green on his scorecard, I'm sorry, a red on his scorecard, he had a problem, and Alan Mulally, to everyone's surprise, started applauding. He stood up in the room and started applauding. So that was the, and, and later he would say that was sort of the epicenter of the culture change that Alan Mulally uh, made it forward that turned them around from losing money to making money is because he was lining up his warm signals, he was lining up rewards with what he wanted to see more of honesty and transparency because when VPs like Mark Fields would actually come up, come through and put the reds on their scorecards, now they could actually focus problem solving attention on issues and challenges instead of ignoring them. And uh, it took two more sessions before uh, everybody finally caught on and Malali said later it looked like a damn crime scene because now there were so many reds on the scorecards but now that he had realigned rewards with what the, the honesty and the transparency wanted to see more of, he actually felt giddy because now they could actually do something about it. The problems were out in the open. And that's half the battle of, is knowing, you know, where those, those issues are so you can address them, fix them and move on from them. And, you know, I had the pleasure to meet Alan late last year and yeah, I, what he did, at Ford and I was in, you know, that area at that time, you know, during the economic recession and, and, you know, saw what happened with GM and Chrysler and, and Ford and, and you know, both in, in the United States and in Canada and, you know, his, his leadership and how he was able to navigate uh, that very, very rigid, big machine and change the culture that saved that organization and saved, you know, countless jobs worldwide um, is something that, you know, 
should, you know, is, I know it is celebrated and, and looked upon going, okay, you know, what, what was done uh, that, you know, organizations could follow uh, if they find themselves in a similar situation. Yeah, it's always challenging to put leaders on pedestals because they end up disappointing us. But Alan Mulally, I think, is in our book, you know, is, is pretty good, to, as perfect as it gets. I mean, just really uh, top notch in performance and culture. And of course, those things are related. Sorry, Lynn, I interrupted you. No, no, no worries. I, I was just going to say, one of the things that um, he did so masterfully is he really understood how he had to sort of over toggle, right? As a leader, sometimes leaders give up a little too quickly. Right. I've sent a message. I've said what I think is important. And he realized that he had to say it again and again and again. And he had to sort of ramp up his warm signals as soon as he realized that the people around him didn't really believe that the, the warm signal, that those, you know, honesty and transparency were really what he was rewarding. Right. And so he had to overcompensate, you know, to send that message. And he did. You know, so ultimately he was successful. But um, not, not every leader understands that sometimes you have to over toggle for the things, the messages you really want to send and the things you want to see. Yeah, one of the things, uh, many things about um, Alan that jumped out at me was, you know, he took that role and he knew it was a mess, but he didn't know how big of a mess it was. You know, he could have, you know, chosen to, you know, stay where he was at and, you know, Boeing was fine. And, And, but, you know, he didn't, he didn't turn away from it. He realized, okay, well now, and he made the necessary adjustments himself in order to create the opportunity for the culture uh, to change there. And, you know, Lynn, you hit it right on the head. It's like, okay, we need to remind people and say the same thing. It's going to be like a broken record, but I'm going to say the same thing again and again until everyone gets it. And, and I remember a conversation he had, you know, with somebody, you know, that said, you know, if, if you're not in alignment with, you know, where we're going with this, okay, that's fine. We can still be friends. You won't work here, but we'll still be friends. And, you know, that was one of those things where his, his approach on things, I, I think, you know, made a really big difference in, in how, how that organization was able to turn it around and, and be able to grow and, and thrive again when, you know, under his leadership. Mm-hmm. We talk about something on frequency five, which is formal communication. And we call it the, the you know, in quotes, the, the puke principle. And basically the idea is as a leader, you have to be willing to say something so many times that literally you think, if I say this one more time, I'm going to lose my lunch. I can't even stand to hear myself say it again. Because just about the time you're at that point is the, is, is the time that the folks around you are just beginning to either believe it or internalize the messaging. And it's true, although we say that in frequency five, it's true across the frequencies, right? I mean, even for something like frequency four, or frequency two, the reward and recognition, the Mulally story, you know, that was about sending that message so many times. He was probably sick of hearing himself say it, but he had to keep saying it until the people around him believed it. And the example you gave too, you know, about, you know, in the, in the meeting when he finally started to see, you know, the crime scene reports, uh, he he had to remind everybody. And yeah, sometimes again, when, when, especially when you go in as a leader and it's an organization that's been around for a while and they have pretty much been stuck in their ways. I say that tongue in cheek, of course, but that's how they've operated. And when you, bring somebody in 
that is definitely an outsider. You know, in, in his situation, he wasn't in the automotive industry. And I know many sectors like to, you know, keep people that have been in the sector uh, to run things. And sometimes it makes a lot of sense, at least from my observation, to bring in an outsider because they're going to see some things that other people won't. And the key is, okay, and how do we convince them that going in this direction, which could be a hard left or a hard right for the organization, uh, is the right thing to do? Uh, because uh, many times you, you run into a lot of resistance and, you know, the example I gave, you know, it's like, you know, okay, if you're not in alignment with this, that's fine. We're, we can still be friends. You just won't work here. And, and that's a difficult discussion to have, especially if that employee or that VP or whomever is, you know, an all-star type of employee. But if it's not in alignment with the direction of where you want the organization to go from a workplace culture standpoint and a leadership standpoint, you have to make those difficult decisions. Yeah. One of the case studies that we've got in the introduction of the book, and I'll, I'll share a shameless plug that on our website, fivefrequencies.com, uh, any, any of your listeners can go download the, uh, inter the book's introduction for free. Uh, we talk about uh, DVS and their cultural transformation. Uh, DVS uh, is, uh, is a bank in, in Singapore. Uh, it's, it originally stood for Development Bank of Singapore, but uh, people knew it uh, uh, in Singapore as damn bloody slow. That's what it went by because their customer service was terrible. And uh, what they have done uh, is really change directions. And when you're a big financial institution, it's, pretty hard to change direction, uh, but they were really committed to it. And because they have done that, because they've said goodbye to a whole bunch of people, and because they've just been so clear and consistent about saying, in the financial realm, we are very vulnerable to disruption. So we actually need to start operating with much greater agility. We actually need to operate as a startup culture. And they've, they've perpetuated that and reinforced that with strong say signals across the five frequencies, what gets rewarded, what gets tolerated, how leaders show up informally, and leaders have really gone there to showing up informally. Uh, that And that consistent messaging uh, on the fifth frequency formal communication, they've gone from worst to first in a 10-year in, in period on a lot of customer satisfaction measures. They're widely seen as uh, Asia's best bank. And it required making some hard choices. It required sticking to those hard choices. And again, like you said, staying, saying goodbye to some people who probably spent 15 or 20 years there helping to create the sort of the, the, the old culture that they had. And, but it's amazing to watch the payoff. It's amazing to see uh, what they've been able to do because they took it seriously and stuck with it even when it was tough. And that's the thing that I, I love to celebrate the most is when an organization who has been viewed or has behaved a certain way and, you know, had that, you know, unfortunate nickname of, from their customer base to turn things around to be viewed as, you know, one of the top, you know, financial institutions. Um, that's not an easy thing to do, but with consistency in the right direction and the focus and, and making the right choices, uh, you set yourself up for success, uh, both in the short term and the long term, you know, by focusing on what is, you know, the right thing to do. And, and sometimes those aren't popular choices. Uh, you're going to upset a lot of people, but 
at the end of the day, you have to realize, okay, who, who do we serve? And, you know, what is the environment that we want to have? And we have to do everything possible to make sure that that happens. Yeah, absolutely. I was at DBS in December in Singapore, and uh, it was amazing to go th- walk through there and you see all these young people in, in uh, you know, khakis and t-shirts and uh, they have uh, beer on tap in their break room, which nobody's drinking because they're all at whiteboards in group settings working really hard, doing really cool stuff, creating great new financial products and apps that they're pushing out into the marketplace. And some of them are going great and some of them aren't, but, but truly if, if, you know, if, if uh, you know, if you've been in finance in the eighties or the nineties, and then you walk there, it's very surprising to think that this is that, that, that you're in a, you're in a, a big bank, but that is an organization that said, if we are, we're, we're subject to disruption, we're vulnerable to disruption, we're going to make our culture a source of competitive advantage and it means we've got to do some things different. And they were bold enough to make it happen. And that's and bold the, enough to make it happen. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. So Lynn, Jeff, I appreciate our conversation today. Uh, we could probably talk for about, you know, 25 hours straight <laughs> without uh, uh, missing a beat, but you know, occasionally, you know, we need to, you know, to sleep and eat and do other things. Uh, you know, and thank you again for the link and please share that link again with the audience and any other links you want to share about the book and the awesome work you guys are doing. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's fivefrequencies.com and you can either use the number five or spell it out. And uh, we've got, you can download the, uh, the introductory chapter that's got a handful of case studies, uh, explains the whole concept. You can download a discussion guide. One of the things that we've found is that a variety of uh, people have told us they're using it in, uh, they have book clubs within their organizations. And so they found the discussion guide helpful. And, uh, and, and then, of course, there's links to buy the book if somebody's interested, fivefrequencies.com. No, that's awesome. And I'll definitely have that information in the show notes. Lynn, Jeff, thank you again so much. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, as oh, I said in the pre-show, um, this is crucial. And I think organizations that will survive and thrive you know, over the next two or three decades are going to be the ones that get their workplace culture right and allow you know, their teams and their organizations to thrive and, and create all the things that don't exist yet and, you know, and, and, you know, create a, a better experience for their clients, their customers and all of society. So thank you again for, for writing the book and for our, your time today. Uh, so, uh, you, what you just said was really well said, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst-case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get as a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.